0: If you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1 this morning, 2 Corinthians 1, as we talk about suffering. In the midst of some dark days for the Vietnam War, it was Edwin Starr who sang, you know the song? War, what is it good for? Hard not to sing that, right? You can't can't say that phrase, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Say it again. All right. You know that song, War? What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. There, I said it without singing it. Well, many people feel that way about suffering. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Well, Christians may be tempted at times to wonder what good this specific trial is bringing into their lives or or how that specific hardship is accomplishing anything. But in general, in theory... In principle, Christians should not wonder whether suffering has any purpose or has any good for their lives. But to get there, we need more than just hugs from each other. We need more than just someone to cry with us. We need someone who won't just pray with us. Those things shouldn't be minimized. We're told, yes, bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6. We're told, weep with those who weep, Romans 12. But those are not enough. We need instruction. Paul is in the midst of suffering, as he writes 2 Corinthians. The Corinthians are in the midst of suffering, as Paul writes them. And Paul gives them instruction. He gives them instruction in the midst of their suffering, but not instruction alone. You see, to those in the midst of suffering, instruction about suffering seems calloused insensitive, too logical, too factual. That's why we need. We need both. We need relationships. We need one another. We need those who will weep with us when we weep, who will bear our burdens with a, with a hug and with time spent, just maybe in silence. But we need instruction as well. We need instruction about God's purposes in our suffering, and both are here in Second Corinthians 1. Start reading in verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. For if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings with which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we've set our hope, he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers, this thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Lord, we thank you for your word here, and we pray you'd help us to understand it. We pray for those here in Christ, burdens would be light, burdens would be lifted, burdens would be cast upon you. Lord, we pray you'd give us more hope, more light, more comfort in the midst of our suffering and give us wisdom about comforting those who are also in suffering as Paul teaches us here. Teach us by your spirit, teach us powerfully, convict where needed and encourage, encourage the brokenhearted, Lord, lift up the weak, do it for your namesake, amen. I want us to consider six things about suffering, comfort, and others. Six things if we get to them all, that is, if we have the time. First, our suffering comes from God with purpose. That's the theme of these verses. That's the theme of almost any teaching in the New Testament about about suffering. That it comes from God with purpose. You see it in chapter 1, you see it intensely in chapter 4, again in chapter 11, again in chapter 12. Suffering is a major theme in the book of 2 Corinthians, so we need to get it down right at the beginning of this message. Yes, it's mysterious that our suffering is from a good God, and yes, it's mysterious that it comes to us with purpose when it seems like it's so purposeless. But the alternatives are not exactly a bastion of comfort. Let me give you some alternatives to the biblical view of suffering and God's design in it. One alternative is to believe that there is no God. Just to believe that there's a random interaction of atoms and molecules that sometimes seem cruel in their assembly together, in their interaction together. But it can't be cruel if there's no one to blame, if there's no one behind those atoms and molecules going in different directions or sometimes collapsing apart, like in an earthquake. In fact, notice in an earthquake like Hades, in the worst of suffering, almost no one feels dispassionate. No atheist feels just merely factual about what just happened, especially if it's their loved one that just died, if they saw tons, literally tons, of concrete fall on top of dad or wife or son, it's not at all satisfying or right to be dispassionate and to conclude, well, sometimes atoms don't bounce your way. It was just molecules changing their formula, and this was a bad day for the molecules that affect me. Well, no, in this line of thinking, not only is there no one behind what's happening to give some stability of our minds of what is going on, and is it controllable, is it, is it just random, is it Purely chaotic. But also there's no one, there's no thing to look to for hope in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that seeming chaos, if there's no God. Alternative two, maybe there's a God, but he's not good. This presupposes that we haven't figured out. That we've somehow concluded that he is there, but we've also concluded that the Bible is unreliable. The Bible says he's good, and the Bible says he's wise, and the Bible says he's merciful and kind, and his loving kindness is over all his works. If God is there, but he's not good, throw out the Bible, and you'll have to come up with this on your own. And you'll have to come up with this. That God is somehow big enough to control things, and yet he is not big enough to be more complicated than your simple math. Simple math? Yeah, simple math. This is what I mean. He's there, but so is suffering. Suffering is bad, therefore God is bad. That's simple math, simple logic, right? Except it's too simple for the God who is the one in control of all these things. A little more complicated. Maybe this alternative. There is a God, but He's not in control of suffering. He's not in it, He's not behind it. So suffering is purposeless and uncontrollable, and the only comfort is knowing that God feels bad about it too. And He wished it wasn't there too. So He weeps with you as one who's also a victim. You say, well, no one believes that one, right? Yeah, there are folks who call themselves evangelicals and believe that one. But what the Bible teaches, I think, is that God ordains all things, causing the good, allowing the evil, not because he's capricious, not because he's whimsical and has bad days and good days, and sometimes it's it's a bad thing in the world, and sometimes it's a good thing in my life. Not because he can't stop the bad things, but he causes the good and allows the evil because he has purposes for himself and purposes for his people that we often can't and may never fully understand. But it's okay, because we're not him. Grasshoppers don't understand electricity, they don't understand quantum physics. The Bible says, in comparison, we're like grasshoppers. Who are you to, to call him into question? Where were you, God said to Job, when I hung the earth in its place? I said, there, that's where it goes. Did I consult you on, on the physics of that? Did I consult you on equations for gravity? No. The Bible teaches that there is purpose even when our suffering seems purposeless and there is good even when there seems to be no possible good. And this is promised to be the case. Romans eight twenty eight. What does it say? We know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. He doesn't say there God takes bad things and then does a switcheroo into, into something that's good. He takes it, wicked as it is, and makes sure it has a Disney-like ending. That's not what it says. In fact, the next verse, verse 29, makes clear what that good is. He does all things for our good, that is, for those he foreknew These he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. There's the good that he's promising in all things. Whether those things are good or bad, he's promising the good of shaping Christians into the image of Jesus, to to look more like Jesus, to be more holy, to be more just, to be more merciful, to be more worshipful. You see this in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis, remember that? Where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. They want to kill him. One of them has the idea, let's just sell him and say to dad that he's dead. An animal got him. They Sell him into slavery. Joseph believes that God has given him promises to be great. Given him visions to be greater than his brothers. His brothers will bow down to him one day. That's why they're mad. And yet... At the end of it, as you see the story unfold over many chapters there in the book of Genesis, at the end, when the brothers finally do bow down before Joseph, where they sold him into slavery as a means of his humiliation, but it led ultimately to his exaltation. Yes, through prison. Yes, through uh, through blame, through, through guilt, uh, through trouble of all kinds. Eventually, he's led to the second of command in Egypt, the brothers bowed down, and Joseph says these pointed words, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you meant for evil is what God meant for good. You, doing the evil of selling a brother into slavery, was the very means that God ordained to get me to Egypt and to eventually elevate me to authority in the land and thereby fulfill his promises. You see this perfectly in the crucifixion of Jesus. Just quickly, let me mention two verses in Acts. In Acts 2, when Peter's preaching, he preaches that this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God, yet you nailed him to a cross. Wicked men nailed Jesus to a cross. And that was God's predetermined plan. you see this? The most wicked thing in all the world, crucifying the Son of God, the perfect God himself in the flesh, this worst evil was for our salvation and altogether part of God's plan. So you see in chapter 4 when they're praying together, the disciples, in verse 27 they say, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. And then they list Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, Israel. Gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The worst evil, yet essential to God's plan to bring the lamb to his slaughter for our redemption, for our salvation. So two things we draw from this so far. Two things we can conclude at this point. Number one, God's purposes for our suffering are not immediately seen, not immediately understood. He's always doing far more than we can imagine. So we should, we should enter our suffering with humility and caution. Yes, sometimes wondering why, but knowing that we're grasshoppers And he's doing something bigger than we could imagine. Secondly, the other side of the coin to this is that, by implication, God limits his suffering. When's the last time you thought about that? Not how bad your suffering is, but how bad it could be, how bad it isn't, how good his mercy is, how loving is his provision and care for you. we should take more time to ponder, especially in suffering, all the good things that he's doing. All the things that could be horrible that he isn't doing. And to rejoice in those gifts and happy moments and the limiting of his suffering is a sign of his mercy and love. Secondly, the second thing we see here is one of the main themes that Our suffering comes with spiritual comfort. Verses 3 and 4, we see that. In fact, not just there, but through these 11 verses, actually just the first 7 verses, you see the word comfort 10 times. Comfort, or a form of that word, pops up 10 times in verses 3 to 7. Just 5 verses, 10 mentions of comfort or a form thereof. And when he says comfort here, He's talking about spiritual comfort. He's not talking about the removal of the suffering necessarily. He's talking about comfort in the midst of the suffering. But look at verse 4. What does it say? He comforts us in all our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We see three things here in this verse 4. One, that God gives comfort in suffering for every Christian. Every Christian. There's the key. You see in verse 4, he comforts us. Who's us? Christians. It's just general. It's a purposely general pronoun. He comforts all. Christians. Secondly, we see he gives comfort to every affliction. Again, in verse 4, God comforts us in all our affliction. And the third thing we see is that God gives sufficient comfort for every trial. In fact, he gives more than sufficient comfort, because we'll see as we go through this that he gives enough comfort so that there's some left over that we can pass on to others and comfort them in the midst of their and their suffering. Now, what doesn't this mean? This doesn't mean that everyone has the same amount of comfort, that everyone gets the same amount of comfort, or that every trial gets from God the same amount of comfort. We all know Christians who suffer better than us, right? They're strong, and they're stable in the midst of their suffering. You know Christians who have been through it, and somehow they're... They're unshakable, it seems. Not just that they don't doubt God, or they're not mad, and they don't have a sourpuss face, but that they're they're caring about others in the midst of their suffering. They're ministering to others in the midst of their suffering. They're more concerned about others in the midst of their suffering. We all know people who deal with their trials more securely, more godly, and more happily than, than we seem to be able to. And also, I know it doesn't feel like He gives comfort for every trial. We think he gives comfort to some on a grander scale than he gives to me. In part, that's true. And we also think he can't possibly give comfort to me in every trial because some seem like they're going to break me. Well, this verse says something different. I know it doesn't feel like he gives comfort for every trial. I know it doesn't feel like he gives enough comfort for this trial. But the three principles, those three promises that I mentioned in verse 4 still stand. He gives comfort to every Christian. He gives comfort in every affliction. And he gives more than enough comfort for the trials that we're going through. Now let me talk about why this is so important. It's rooted in God himself. Let me explain what I mean by that. If we ask the question, why does suffering exist? Or or if you ask a more specific question, why does this specific suffering have to be in my life right now? There could be a lot of answers to that. The Bible gives us a lot of different reasons for why suffering is in this world and what God is doing with it. But one answer could go like this. Look at verse 3, where it says that God is the father of all compassion and the God of all comfort. Note those words, father and compassion and comfort. It's his nature to be a father. He didn't just be a father when he had us. He had us because he is a father He's compassionate, and he's comforting. But his fatherly compassion and comfort never get to be displayed if there isn't suffering for his people. We never really get to see it and experience it. It never gets to be intimately known unless there's suffering for him to apply that compassion to. Compassion means I see something broken and I'm sad about it. Comfort means I see something hurting and I look to help it. It presupposes suffering. Imagine a a mom. Hypothetical world. Imagine a mom whose baby didn't cry, didn't have needs, didn't get restless with the gas pains didn't need to be rocked to sleep at night. Now, most moms, if given the choice, may actually want that kind of baby for their own sanity and because, yes, you hurt when babies hurt. You, you, you are almost in tears, if not in tears, when, when babies are restless with their pain. But in such an imaginary world, There are certain motherly instincts and characteristics that would never get to be displayed and experienced by an unneedy baby. A mom's soft arms, a mom's gentle shh, mom singing, mom praying over boo boos, where there's no hurt, where there's no need, where there's no suffering. There's so much of mom that might be there, might be real, might be true, but doesn't get to be shown, doesn't get to be displayed. And the baby never experiences it. Now, no mom is glad her baby is hurting so that she can comfort the baby, but let's not forget that the Bible tells us over and over and over again that God is intent to show who he is. And what he's doing. That this is the most important thing in the world. God displaying himself to his blind, wayward creatures. This is the essence of his plan. And he uses suffering as a means for us to know something of his comfort. His fatherly compassion. That means that there's a God-centeredness in God. That is loving because he's ultimate, the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth. And so he does things for the spread of his name, the spread of his fame, the spread of his glory. So many verses describe him doing this thing or that thing for his glory, for his name, for his namesake, for the testimony of His glory. Listen to Isaiah 48 as just one example. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. And then a verse later, God says, I am the first and the last. Which doesn't just mean chronologically. He's eternal, that's true. It means he's the first and last of everything. To him goes the glory in all things. Think about Job 1. Remember that book? Do you know that story? Where Satan comes and accuses Job before God of really liking God, obeying God, only because God is kind, provides, and if God, if you took that away, he wouldn't follow you. He wouldn't honor you. God picks up that gauntlet that's thrown down. He, He takes that challenge. Why? Job is almost a secondary part of the story, isn't he? It doesn't get back to it so much at the end, but the beginning of the story tells us. This is a debate between God and Satan, and God justifies his testimony, justifies his name before the heavenly courts using Job's suffering and Job's faithfulness in the midst of the suffering. Listen to 2 Corinthians 12, or if you want to look there, thumb just a few pages over to the right. Remember, I said 2 Corinthians is a book loaded with suffering. Well, here's Paul talking about some of his own suffering. And again, we want to see something of the God-centeredness in the suffering, the purpose for the suffering that Paul describes here. Look in verse 7. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of revelations that Paul had seen, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. He's given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. See, even here, God is using Satan and Paul's torment, a thorn. For purposes. What purpose? To keep Paul from exalting himself. So verse 8, he praised the Lord three times that this thorn in the flesh might leave. God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected, demonstrated, and glorified in weakness. So Paul concludes: Most gladly I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore I'm well content with weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Well content with these things? Can you imagine anyone saying that? I'm perfectly content with my weaknesses. Perfectly content with trouble. Perfectly content with people making fun of me. Perfectly content with persecution and difficulties of all kinds and every kind. Why? Why would you say that? Well, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak. then I'm I'm strong. God here is intent to show his strength in Paul's weakness. And Paul gets it, and that's the only way in which Paul can glory in his weakness. So maybe part of the reason for our surprise about suffering, or even our disgust with suffering, is that we're confused about who it is that's on display in creation. We're confused about what this thing is all about. Twenty-first century American consumerism says it's all about you. And it's all about your comfort. The Bible says it's all about God. And God will give us what is ultimate. He'll give us what is ultimate himself he will exalt his name, he'll make his way known, he'll show his strength he will do it for his praise, for his glory our comfort in suffering comes ultimately from God yes through people, through other means but ultimately from him and for his glory, let that motivate the suffering you're going through right now or the round of suffering that you're about to go through. Yes, I said about to. You know, you know it'll happen. It's not just when you walk under a ladder, set in front of a black cat. You know, God will bring a season of hardship in your life soon or later. But unless He takes you out of out of this world in the next day or two, you know it's coming. But don't seek comfort in the wrong way, in the wrong places, like we so often do. Think through some ways in which we, we pursue comfort in all the wrong places. Sometimes we just try not to think about the suffering, just try to press on with life, stay the course, keep busy, 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 and we won't really think about how hard it is or, or, or what could happen. Or maybe by just telling ourselves that this will improve. Just keep saying, this will improve, this will improve, this won't last, this won't last, this too will pass. Or by turning our attention to pleasures, sometimes sin, sometimes just stuff, but distracting our, our suffering, our minds from suffering, by enjoying other things. Picking up a new hobby, getting a new car, new thing, new hobby, new pastime. Sometimes telling ourselves that we deserve it because, well, it's been pretty hard lately. That's not the comfort the Bible prescribes for us. Not complaining, not venting, not merely looking for others' pity. No, this is not the path that God is carving out for us in 2 Corinthians 1. God is the source of comfort. He gives it. He gives it to every Christian in every trial, and he gives more than you need. So believe it. Believe it even when you don't feel it. Pursue it. Pursue it. Go to him for comfort. Pray. Pray for God to comfort you. Pray for him to glorify himself with more of his compassion, more of his comfort, and more of his provision in the midst of your suffering. You can pray that with an unparalleled confidence. You can pray that in a way that you can't pray, Lord, take this away. Because he hasn't promised that he would take it away, but he has promised that he'd give you comfort in the midst of your suffering. He isn't promised that it will have a happy ending. But he has promised to glorify himself by demonstrating his compassion through spiritual comfort. Pray for it. The third thing here is that our suffering and comfort are for others. We started to look at that already. And by the way, let me tell you, I said six things we'll look at here. The first three are purposely long and then we'll, we'll make a sprint to the end See if we make it to the finish line or not. But, but again, let's camp out on this concept. That our suffering and comfort are for others. Now, other verses in the New Testament tell us that suffering, do sufferings do us good as Christians. They're for our good. You see it in Romans 5 where Paul says he exalts in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance, proven character, and hope. You see it in James chapter 1 where we're told to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. I don't know about you, but as a, a Christian, as a Christian who sees sometimes professing Christians leave the race, sit down and quit, I want endurance. Endurance comes in part through trials. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1 here stands on the shoulders of verses like this. Stands on the shoulders of verses like Romans 8.28. It goes beyond those. It doesn't just say your suffering is for your good. 2 Corinthians 1 here says your suffering is for your good for others. Do you see that? Look at verse 4 again. There, 2 Corinthians 1. Let me find it in my Bible first. God comforts us in all our affliction. That's about all we've covered so far. God comforts us in all our affliction. And then here's what we're on now. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Our suffering is not just for our good, it's for our good, for others. It makes us stronger. Our own suffering makes us stronger, which makes us more equipped to minister to others. As we go through suffering, various kinds of trials, we have more empathy for those who are going through similar kinds of trials. God brings suffering into your life so that when you hear about suffering in others... You can relate, you can have genuine empathy. We don't have to imagine what it would be like to be in their shoes if we've actually walked somewhat in those kinds of shoes, that, that kind of terrain. Romans 12, 15, I quoted it already just in passing, but that verse, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I marvel how the first half is easy for me to fake. If rejoicing is a pat in the back in the midst of someone else's rejoicing, laughing with them, celebrating with them, congratulatory words, rejoice with those who rejoice, put a smile on and say, yeah, I can do that. I can fake that. Weep with those who weep. Unless you do like the old fat Baptist preacher cry. You know, you go to one of those churches where at the end of the service the preacher did this. Listen, they always had a hanky in their back pocket. (laughs) Because they knew they were going to fake cry eventually. You can't weep with those who weep. Unless you actually weep. You can't actually weep. Unless you know something of what they're going through. Our affliction signals for us, like a flare, like a like a flare going off of a ship. Our signal, our, our suffering signals for us an assignment. An assignment for others and their comfort. Yes, the assignment of finding comfort in God for ourselves, right? Suffering happens, and when it does, yes, that signals the flare. Get ready. Get the milk of the word ready. Get the sword of the word ready. Pray. Gird up your loins, like Paul says in Ephesians 6. It's going to be rough. Suffer well. But, But our suffering and our affliction signals for us an assignment, not just to get ready, but to serve others, to comfort others. In other words, our suffering and the comfort that God gives in our suffering are not end roads. They're means. They're means for him getting glory. They're means to our spiritual growth. Our suffering and comfort are means of our ministry to others' suffering. It's like the karate kid. I love DSC. This is what just happened. I said, like the Karate Kid. And half of you went, All right, cool. Karate Kid illustration. The other half said, oh, Ryan, come on. I brought my friend, and they just asked if you're out of college yet. And you bring up the Karate Kid. Thanks. All right. Random thought, bad illustration. Here it goes. Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi tells him, You know, sand off, sand on, or wax on, wax off, send the floor, send the floor paint the fence, paint the fence, these are not, these are not end roads. This is not the end of the road, but these are means of him building muscle to fight Johnny, right? (laughs) We don't fight Johnny. We we go through trials. It's rough. It hurts. But, it's the means of god getting glory and us growing in the faith and us being better at ministering to others more sympathetic to their suffering more familiar with their hurt how dare we despise that how dare i despise that how dare i murmur it's something so good and so needed God gives more than enough comfort for our suffering. He gives extra so that we have something left over to give to others who are also in need. It's like if it's a scale of 1 to 10 and your trial is an 8. The comfort that he gives on a scale of 1 to 10 is not just 8. It's 8 plus. There's something actually left over. You say, it doesn't feel like there's anything left over. I know. Now, Paul talked about that too. Read Second Corinthians four, and, and see Paul serving out of nothing. And you see in all this that this is telling us something about the body of Christ, right? That dealing with suffering is a corporate thing, so those who are in suffering need comforters. And those who are in suffering need to be comforting. It goes both ways. Are you in a home group? Do people know you here? Do you have enough enough Christians around you so that they actually know when you go through suffering? Maybe you're in one of those groups, but you're a wall. No one's going to know. I'm not going to tell. It shows weakness or they won't care. That's not the body of Christ. We comfort out of suffering. We comfort those in suffering. And it doesn't have to be complicated or sophisticated comfort that we give. Sometimes it is weeping with those who weep. Sometimes it is bearing burden. Sometimes it is just a note of saying, I'm praying for you. That's how Paul ends the section that we read. Verse 11, he says, here's how you help us. Pray for us. Tell people you're praying for them as you ask them to pray for you. fourth thing here and I won't get through to all six but this one we must look at it's that similarly our comfort came from Jesus' suffering look at verse 5 for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance so also our comfort is abundant through Christ suffering is ours in abundance Paul says comfort is ours in abundance. Christ's sufferings were abundant, and his sufferings were for our comfort, right? We get that. 2 Corinthians 9, same book. Paul says he became poor for our sake so that we would become rich. He suffered for our comfort. He died so that we may live he was separated from god on the cross so that we would be reconciled to god after the cross but isn't this verse also saying his suffering leads to our suffering doesn't seem to make sense it sounds like it's going to be a happy ending our uh, his suffering is our comfort period the end that will be the end of the story one day when Christ returns in the new heaven and the new earth. And until then, part of identifying with Christ is also identifying with his suffering. First Peter 4 talks about this. Don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you as though some strange thing happened to you. You identify with Christ in it. Peter says, you're suffering because he suffered. If they killed him, don't be surprised they hate you. If he didn't have anywhere to lay his head, don't be surprised that life is hard. Don't be surprised that by many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of heaven, Acts 14 says. Or Philippians 1, that to you it's been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Somehow we've gotten hold of the idea that Christians should suffer less than others. And the one truth about that is that sin is painful. Deeper sin eventually has deeper consequences. Whatever you reap, that you'll sow. So we expect that those who are not Christians, not not of the way, not following Christ, that they would suffer more. The Bible says that, no, our Lord suffered. And until he comes to take us home, we will suffer. There will be tribulations. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't despise. And we shouldn't think it's meaningless. Or just the way it has to be. or, Or that he only intervenes and steps in some of the time. But again, he is in and over and has purposes for all suffering. He gives comfort to every Christian. He gives comfort to every Christian in every one of their trials, even when they don't feel it. Because he has purposes for them to feel broken, to feel needy. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That he's glorified for us to feel needy and helpless and for us to pray more and for us to ransack the Bible looking for life, looking for morsels to feed our desperate souls. God has given comfort to Christians not just to be comforted but to comfort It's supposed to go to others. So every bit of suffering, every ounce of spiritual, divine comfort we receive signals for us be on the lookout, serve, pray, watch, help, weep, teach, love, because we have been loved. We have been taught. We have been comforted. Our Father is our model. And verse 7, by the way, also tells us something we need to hear that for Paul and the Corinthians here, his hope for them was firmly grounded because they share in suffering and because they share in comfort. In other words, his, his suffering and comfort and their suffering and their comfort could show something about the validity of the new birth in their life. I wonder if you think of trials as another opportunity for you to feel more assured that your faith is solid. Not that you excel, but that you go through it and you didn't deny him. You go through it and you didn't leave him. You go through it and he's still your compass. He's still is still your portion. I think when that happens, we, like Paul was of the Corinthians, should, should be happily encouraged, assured. Maybe you even see something of growth in this area in your life. I mean, we believe that suffering is part of the Christian life. Acts 14, Philippians 1, on and on it goes. Couldn't we also say growth in the Christian life, is so significantly tied to how well we suffer. This is a great litmus test. So do you see yourself praying better prayers in the midst of your suffering? Going to God quicker in the midst of your suffering? Do you see yourself in the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, however long you've been a Christian, do you see yourself handling this thing differently than you used to? Even slightly differently? Praise God. And remember that the next time suffering hits hard. I was teaching the kids yesterday, our kids, about how Psalm 56, verse 3, uh, one of the first verses, I think the first verse that Sarah had our kids memorize when they were one, um, before they could really even enunciate the word, just this phrase, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. I told the kids yesterday, do you see how it says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. It doesn't say there's going to be a line in the middle and there's either fear or there's trust. But when I'm currently afraid, I will resolve to trust in you. There's overlap. There's no clean line in the middle. In the midst of my fear, I'll trust. That takes fighting for trust, doesn't it? That takes trying to think through the fear. Do it with a Bible. Do it with the church. Do it for God's glory. Do it until he's finally one day done with us. Not done with us to desert us, but done his work in us, and it's finished. It's completed. No more sin. No more tears. No more labor and toil. We'll see him. We'll be like him. We'll worship him forever and ever. But not yet. Not yet. It's by many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. But you can trust him.